but some of these the pastors on the the Mexico side, I mean, they're, they're maybe they're bivocational and there's not much space. There's not much money. They don't know how they're going to do it. They just know it's the right thing to do. And they feel like that's what God wants them to do. Um, so I think like that, just being in a posture of learning from them is the first step, just listening and learning for us. That's, that's our, our biggest priority. We don't have, we don't have solutions coming into it. We were trying to understand the setting on the ground and understand who was doing what and still are and continue to every day and then see how can we come alongside and support or or how can we help guide groups or churches or universities from the U.S. side in supporting as well. You're listening to Upside Down Podcast, an ecumenical conversation at the intersection of justice, spirituality, and culture. We've created this space with you in mind. So join us for unscripted conversations on God's upside down kingdom. Welcome to episode 61, Kinship at the Border. My name is Kayla Craig, and I am one of the hosts of Upside Down Podcast. And today with me, I have Elisa Molina. Say hi, Elisa. Hey, guys. And we have a really special guest host with us today. This is somebody that... um, one of our listeners and friends, Sarah, contacted us and said, you guys, this guy is upside down in ways that I can't even put into words. And she, you know, proceeded to try and Lindsay and I talked and we thought this is somebody that we want to talk to. This is somebody we want to learn from because we want to talk about what is happening at the border with our brothers and sisters. And Sammy is joining us. His last name, I'm going to try to get right. It's Sammy De Pasquale. Sammy, did I get it get it halfway close? Yeah, that was great. De Pasquale. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we've all seen the images of asylum seekers at the United States border. And we've heard the stories of children being separated from their parents and the terrible conditions at detention centers. These headlines and these stories can really cause us to want to look away or disengage or choose a certain side. But in God's upside down kingdom, we know for a fact that we're called to proximity. So how can we move beyond the headlines and find kinship with our neighbors during this time? This is the Upside Down Podcast, and today we're talking with Sammy. So Sammy's desire to engage border issues through Abara, which we are going to learn a lot about soon, has emerged out of 15 years of neighborhood-based work with youth and families at Ciudad Nueva Community Outreach. He lives and works with his family in the Rio Grande District, a beautiful community in the heart of El Paso, Texas, which Elisa has connections with. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about that later. (laughs) And most of Sammy's neighbors have actually moved recently from Mexico and are really striving to acclimate and pursue their dreams. So given kind of that strategic location of the neighborhood and the challenging and the challenges facing the border, um, Sammy kind of felt compelled 
to bring people together across boundaries, to learn from each other, understand like the realities at the border and address some of the most challenging needs on the frontier. Um, Sammy, I was just wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit about your personal background because it's pretty unique. Sure. Yeah. So I, well, my parents are from Buffalo, New York or near that area. Um, But before I was born, they had moved to the country of Jordan in the Middle East. And uh, they were in language school when I was born. And then they have lived in the Middle East pretty much since then, except for a few years here and there. Um, And they've lived in Jordan, Cyprus, Egypt, uh, northern Sudan, northern Iraq and Kurdistan, and then back to Jordan. And so they're in Jordan right now and they work at a hospital um, on the border with Syria. Yeah, so they've been in the Middle East for 40-some years. Um, and so when I was growing up, uh, you know, I guess I I grew up very much a third culture kid. Although when I was young, I really was, we were very much embedded in our community in Jordan, in, in Amman, in the capital. And uh, so many of my close friends were Palestinian Jordanians, um, many of whom, uh, whose families had been refugees and had uh, sort of been forced to move out of um, the area where they had lived when the state of Israel was created. And then, so they'd moved to Jordan. And so growing up at that time in Jordan, over half the population were originally Palestinians who had sort of moved over to Jordan. Um, and very, I like my schooling was in Arabic and the church I went to um, was in Arabic and in the neighborhood where I play soccer on the streets, that was all in Arabic. So I very much felt at home there. And so for me, when I would come to the States, it was a little bit like, well, I was def- it's definitely sort of like visiting my parents' country. I didn't know much about it here in the States, um, had no idea how to act, or I hadn't really watched any TV shows or um, didn't know the songs. So it, a couple of years in middle school um, in North Carolina, that's where I really sort of immersed myself. <laughs> I'd like lock myself in my room in our apartment and just turn on the radio and try to like listen to what was on the radio to figure out what people were listening to as I was doing my homework. So I was just going to say, so how has your upbringing kind of influenced to the work you do now? Well, I think it's, yeah, hugely informative. And I don't know if I would be doing it if it wasn't sort of for my background. Um, Later on, I lived in in Cyprus, which is a divided island. Um, The northern part is occupied by Turkey and the southern part is Greek. Um, I lived on the Greek portion, but in the capital that was divided. And so it was sort of like what Berlin used to be with just I mean, blockaded down the middle of the city. And what's interesting is that's sort of like what my city is like right now in El Paso. Mm. Um, El Paso and the sister city across the border, Ciudad Juarez, really is like one metropolis split down the middle in two different countries. So the downtowns of both El Paso and Ciudad Juarez across the border are right across from each other and people walk across and go over to eat, see friends, family, work. Um, uh, so I know, I think that's what's been incredibly interesting for me living here. I moved here because my wife um, is originally from El Paso and we had met in college. We thought we were just going to be in El Paso for a couple of years, but now we've been here 15 years. Wow. And I know, I think probably being in a country that was different from my parents' country um, really helps me identify with the kids in our neighborhood and a lot here in El Paso who have moved from elsewhere. 
yeah, so I feel very much a connection and kinship with that. There's got to be some empathy that um, that happens when you've kind of lived that experience as a as a kid. Um, I am actually from El Paso, so I was wildly excited to know that to read that you um, your work with this organization is in El Paso. I very much lived that growing up, going back and forth. We would go, uh, you know, my dad would take my brothers to get haircuts in Juarez on the weekends and we'd eat wonderful food. And then just, yeah, we'd come right back uh, uh, home across the border. And it was a very, um, it felt there was just a, an overwhelming sense of community, like uh, connectedness with uh, Juarez. I haven't been, I haven't lived there for, it's been about 20, 25 years. I now live in Austin, Texas, but the majority of, uh, of my family still, still lives there. So I feel a great, uh, I, I feel a great interest, uh, to talk to you today and learn about the things that you're doing there in that beautiful city. That's great. Yeah. Sammy. Um, and I, as I was kind of researching and getting to know you just via creeping around on the internet. I saw that you're on the international board of directors of MICA global and on your, and you're on the global connections committee of the CCDA, the Christian community development association, which is a network that some of us, um, who our hosts belong to. Um, and we really, really respect what the CCDA is doing. And so that kind of felt like, just a, another affirmation that this was going to be a good conversation. So I know Elisa and I are both excited. Thanks for being on. Absolutely. So tell us what exactly Abara is. You're the founder of it and the work that you do. Yeah. So I think a starting point is like you mentioned earlier, just our neighborhood work in uh, through Ciudad Nueva Community Outreach, which is the organization. I've been involved with and led for the last 15 years um, and, and sort of being in a community setting, really focusing on community issues and just sort of trying to be good neighbors um, with the, the youth and the families um, in our direct community where I live. Um, it's just, you, you very naturally see and, and come across so many of the issues that are happening at a larger scale along the border because those issues are affecting the daily lives of so many community members. Um, and so as immigration has sort of played out on the political scene and seems to sort of be oftentimes used by one political party or another for whatever agenda the, of the day, um, that's just, it's been really painful sort of to live that out um, in our community. Um, and I think also just for me, having grown up outside of the U.S. And, and, and been in a number of countries, lived in a number of countries, um, my interests were would always get drawn to sort of global issues and patterns and, um, I guess, issues that sort of were far beyond the scope of just sort of that square mile where I live. Um, and uh, actually, it was through the Global Connections Committee of CCDA, chairing that committee for a number of years, and one of the things we were attempting to do was try to provide opportunities for uh, leaders in the U.S., community, you know, neighborhood-based leaders in the U.S. to hear and listen and learn 
and encounter um, sort of from different parts of the world, um, see, learn from church, the church work that was happening. So one, one, one of those trips that we mobilized was to the Middle East. And then about a year and a half ago, we mobilized another one to Central America to try to look at the roots of why so many people were coming to the border and feeling, feeling forced to flee. And um, we were in El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. And it was in that trip where I find I just finally just felt like I have to do something more about this broader issue, not just um, not just sort of our, our neighborhood based work. And it just sort of a fire was lit inside. It was already there. It had been there the whole time. But I just felt very because um, I felt like God was really pushing me in that direction. And so um, if we just sort of started Take, groups would just naturally call people I knew through CCDA or elsewhere when when something would come on the news and be like, hey, what's happening on the border? Can you help us figure this out? Um, is there Are there ways to help out? Can we come visit? And be like, yeah, sure. Um, and so we engaged very naturally at that level, and that just kept growing and growing. Um, and over time, realized that really we probably needed to form a new entity that really just focused on these border issues because there was distinct from, but I mean, connected, but distinct from the neighborhood issues. And that's how Abara got formed. And Abara is really about inspiring connections and responding to needs on the U.S.-Mexico border, at least currently, that's sort of our, our main focus. Um, and so we were trying to do that in uh, three, three main ways right now, just through border encounters, providing opportunities to come visit, see for themselves here, really meet people in person, hear from a whole lot of different perspectives. Then border response, um, trying to address some of the most practical needs on the frontier, which right now it's been this last year, sort of the shelters that are housing asylum seekers. At first it was in El Paso, then after remain in Mexico went in full effect. Now it's been over in Juarez. And then also through uh, collaborating with others along the border, east-west, and then also along migrant pathways from Central America. So... When you say, you know, you said like border issues, can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing? Yeah, well, it's just, I mean, like right now what we're seeing are just large numbers of asylum seekers from Central America um, who are in primarily right now in church, church shelters over in Juarez. Um, there's 15 officially, officially recognized shelters and i say like churches that have sort of gone through a process of being recognized and there's a lot more informal ones and then there are thousands more asylum seekers who um have just sort of banded together and found apartments or even just been invited into individual homes and now just in the last month or two we've seen many who have fled violence in uh, some of the southern mexican states who are just sleeping on the ground um, on the other side of the borders, like the bridges in El Paso. So there's about 30, I think they figure about 3,200 right now um, across from these three different bridges in El Paso. And these are all families. A lot of them are like, you know, six people in the family. So with a lot of kids um, and it's getting pretty cold. So it's gone below freezing now a couple times. Mm. Um it sort of complicated the situation there. They, they, they could actually go to some shelters probably, but 
they're not wanting to lose their place in line because the, the system is so haphazard in terms of how they can approach the border to request asylum. And I mean, like logistically, the the requirements uh, are changing all the time <laughs> and what's allowed and what's not allowed and the way you're supposed to, to do the paperwork and what you're supposed to file and how you're supposed to file it. Like my read on the situation is that it's constantly changing. Is that true? Yes. Yes, it really is. And even, even the experts in the field are unsure often about what is actually happening. And I think even in the government agencies too, because mm-hmm. sometimes there's a mandate that comes down and then they're the, the officials don't know what to do about it exactly. And so even from one, say, border patrol station to a next, it might look a little different or from one city to a next, the way things get unrolled. A lot of uncertainty. I'm interested in hearing more about, I mean, it's just, I mean, just to to listen to, it's daunting um, because El Paso is my hometown. I tried really, I tried really hard to keep plugged into a, a, like you say, a very, uh, an ever-changing, almost feels like day-to-day situation. Um, How do you guys go about networking with, with, with everybody else who's trying to do good? Like, how are you, how does that happen where there's so, thankfully, it seems like there's so many different kinds of organizations, religious and not, trying to um, to help and to bring some human aid to to people who are 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 just really at the very uh, base level needing needing the basic need, their basic needs met. How do you guys structure that? It's so challenging because there really isn't there isn't a roadmap, right? It's sort of like new territory. People are just sort of coming across situations and reacting. And, and there's, it's not masterminded by anyone, the reaction. So there's lots of different groups that are responding. Um, so when it was on, on, if I back up a little bit on the, when uh, for, for two or three years, the numbers that were hitting the border, again, asylum seeker families from Central America um, were able to present themselves at the border, request asylum. If they passed an initial credible fear test, then they would be detained for a while by ICE and then probably released within a few weeks to go to a sponsor family. Almost everybody had family members or close friends around the country that they would go to. So the response was really, the need was really just a couple days of transitional shelter and support as they went on their way. And uh, there's a long-term house of hospitality migrant shelter here in El Paso called Annunciation House that's been around for over 40 years, and they've been doing this day in and day out for 40 years. Of course, the the actual realities of who's hitting the border has changed, but we're a migrant city. El Paso is like means the pass, the crossing. Right. Um, so there's always people that are traveling through. So Annunciation House at that point was sort of coordinating on the ground on the El Paso side, but it got far beyond their capacity to house, because for a while there, earlier this year, the numbers went up even to 1,000 a day that were being released into El Paso, if you can think of that. And, and, but most were only here a couple of days, and really they needed calls to, to their sponsor families, then a shower, some clean clothes, some food, a place to sleep, and then the sponsor families would purchase tickets for them to, to head on their way, and then they just needed a place to stay for a day or two and some kindness and hospitality. 
So it was more of a transitional situation. And Annunciation House was sort of a hub. And then to about 30 different groups, mostly churches, almost entirely churches from across the spectrum, Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal, um, came on board over time. Not everyone as fast as others, but over time, there was a big group. And many of the churches were just opening their doors to host once a week or twice a week or once a month. Or there's a couple of churches that were hosting every day. So that was a little more easily coordinated because there was uh, the presence of Annunciation House. But then when Remain in Mexico went in effect, essentially people, that those numbers decreased from an average of, say, seven, 800 a day down to what's now maybe 40, 50 a day. So like maybe 5% of what they were. And those numbers instead were being pushed back to Mexico. And so they were going to await their their immigration court hearings in Mexico rather than their cities of destination. So then you just had this swelling in the different border towns in Mexico, putting intense pressure on those cities that are already, many of them, some of the more vulnerable cities in the country, in Mexico. And there it was like just people sleeping on the street and a church like your church or my church or whoever sees someone on the street and is like, starts talking to someone and they're like, hey, come in, come in and spend the night. And then before they know it, they might have dozens or in some cases a couple hundred people that are taking shelter in their church. Um, and there's then there's so many groups that have been involved. There's a couple state-level agencies out of the state of Chihuahua that have been incredible, really, in coordinating some of these efforts or trying to coordinate, um, but but not everybody knows about them. So, so there's so many people responding individually even. I know somebody who just, and I think this is pretty common or more common than you would think, who just... They're, you know, they have an asylum seeker living with them, um, just someone they befriended on the street. Um, so it's really hard to coordinate and there isn't a sort of a masterminded solution. So we've just been trying to go and meet with every shelter, meet with every agency, um, try to understand who's doing what. And now we have a couple full-time staff that are doing that on the Juarez side. And so that's how we've sort of been approaching how to, to partner Wow. So how do you kind of avoid the kind of saviorism and white saviorism that can sometimes come to play? And how do you exactly do that with the partnering? Um, tangibly speaking, how, how does that play out? That's a great, great question. Um, and I think a great, I mean, just coming at it with that question is a, is the right way to do it. I think, um, Honestly, it's been amazing and humbling, and the the U.S. Church could learn a lot from <laughs> the Mexico Church mm. um, in this regard. And not everybody. I mean, obviously, there's there's plenty of churches that haven't gotten involved, but it's amazing how some of the churches that have opened their doors they're not doing it out of abundance. It's not that they've got extra space, which is the case with a lot of the, the churches on the U.S. side. Mm-hmm. Um, they had extra space, extra resources. So yeah, it's an inconvenience, but it's not that much of an inconvenience. But some of these, the pastors on the, the Mexico side, I mean, they're they're maybe they're bivocational, and there's not much space, there's not much money. They don't know how they're going to do it. They just know it's the right thing to do, and they feel like that's what God wants them to do. Um, so I think like that, just being in a posture of learning from them is the first step. Just listening and learning for us, that's that's our, our biggest priority. 
we don't have we don't have solutions coming into it. We were trying to understand the setting on the ground and understand who was doing what and still are and continue to every day and then see how can we come alongside and support or or how can we help guide groups or churches or universities from the U.S. side in supporting as well. Um, and so I think by uh, the biggest thing is just, yeah, listening, learning, having the the local churches or groups on the Mexico side take lead and us just be in a, in a supportive posture. And when groups come, um, our border encounter groups, oftentimes it's the same thing. It's just we very much highly encourage, like we're here to listen and learn, not to, not to solve some issue necessarily. Sometimes it ends up that the shelters where we're visiting have, have something that they could, that they could uh, use help with, um, in which case then we'll have maybe like a service piece to a, to a group project, but we almost always try to, the goal is to have like maybe the guests that are there, the asylum seekers who are there be joined in, in the project. So maybe it's, maybe it's just playing games with kids or singing songs or um, recently we've been working on a water storage and filtration system for one of the larger shelters and some land needed to be cleaned out. And last week the group was there doing some of that and immediately the asylum seekers who were living there came up, came, came over and started working alongside them and they were sort of working alongside um, together. And so if it's, there are many situations where there's some financial need. For instance, right now, we just need bunk beds. Lots of them need bunk beds just to maximize space. And so in, in hearing that um, from the, um, the host churches or groups, we just ask sort of like, what, how, how would we go about doing that or helping with that? And so, for instance, right now with the bunk beds, it's like, when I, it's like welded metal bunk beds that normally... In the U.S., we'd be like, let's get some two-by-fours and throw them together with some screws. It's just the normal way we would do it. But um, there was, like, asylum seekers who had expertise in welding and had designed some. Wow. And so it's the asylum seekers themselves making the bunk beds in the way that they would make right. them, not in the way that I would make them or you would make them. Um, so trying to always, I guess, be in that posture of just, hey, how can, first of all, how can everyone be involved? And taking um, using the assets that are already there um, before trying to do something ourselves, and so we've turned away a lot mm. of groups. Or uh, actually, we haven't had to turn away that many, but we just explained very. It's we're not here to come in and be the solution. We're here to learn, and if we can come alongside and do something together, then then that's great. So I think what I hear you saying is you're in some ways, kind of like matchmakers with people that maybe have resources that want to help in some way. And um, then what is going on at the border? And you're kind of like, almost like a middle person, like a connector to um, the need and then kind of the solution in some way. Is that correct? I think in the, in the, like for our border response piece, yes. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. Like in when we're in the, with the actual things we're trying to help with. And I'm saying that as opposed to like, say the border encounters, which are very much about facilitating education and immersion right. um, and encountering the other. Yeah. If I pulled it back sort of just to our, our mission, 
or if I'll start with even our, our vision, our vision really is to have a, an ever-growing community of peacemakers who seek to understand and reconcile across divides mm. with the hope of transforming conflict into peace. So it's not about building a bunk bed for us necessarily. We, we, I mean, if, if, if things were as they should be, then there wouldn't be asylum seekers at our border and we wouldn't have to be responding to this. And so ultimately we would love to see people, um, especially in our context, coming from a faith perspective and uh, as followers of Christ um, who are actively engaged in understanding the other and seeking, uh, seeking out how to be peacemakers. So with our mission, we're trying to cultivate opportunities for understanding, serving, loving across divides. And we're sort of trying to do that through education, encounters, and response. So that, that response piece isn't, is, we're not trying, like our goal isn't to be a, um, a relief agency in any way, but through sort of this understanding, serving, loving, that ends up being one of the tangible things that ends up happening because it's a need. But if that need disappeared tomorrow, we would still exist as a as an organization and still see our, our many ways in which the mission could be pursued. Um, so today that we're pursuing the mission by facilitating encounters on the U.S.-Mexico border, um, resourcing and connecting the shelters, like you said, matchmaking, and then collaborating with other organizations. But ultimately, we would love to change the, I mean, be involved, I guess, in transformation of all of us to what it means to be active peacemakers wherever we're living. I love that. And I actually would love to hear you talk a little bit about what kind of um, what kind of posture people come with when you are leading these trips where the whole purpose is to put people in community with each other to learn from each other do you generally have people who are already kind of open and wanting wanting to come with that posture does that make it a more fruitful experience yeah i think it definitely makes it a more fruitful experience but if someone is willing to come down and experience firsthand and what's happening as long as they are willing to actually listen um then, I mean, we're ha- we're happy to have people come no matter where they're coming from because that's sort of how you make entry points, right? If you're, um, how do we know any better until we see for ourselves or experience firsthand what's happening? And especially if we have some idea of who the other is, you know, we we otherize so much, um, and I, and when we come to in proximity and we start interacting face to face with someone, then that break that hopefully breaks down that otherness it's all of a sudden it's not a scary invader person who's seeking to harm us but all of a sudden you realize this crying 22 year old mother with her two kids who very well may have been sexually assaulted on the way if um or had some sort of i mean traumatic experience beforehand and then it's your reality it shifts your reality a little bit at least you would hope so um, your view of reality. And I think that was what, I mean, what has captured me from the beginning. You know, you asked what uh, sort of my background, how that plays in. I think growing up in the Middle East and in a, in a setting where I was with Christian and Muslims and, and had so many friends 
um, from Christian and Muslim backgrounds, Arabs, and then coming to the U.S. and seeing U.S. perceptions of what Arabs are like and how fault how faulty they were, but then vice versa, same thing in the Middle East, sort of some of the ideas of what the U.S. is like. You, you realize, like when you're when you don't know, um, and especially if you're in a sort of cauldron where um, your nation or your region or your church or whatever it is is indoctrinating you and enculturating you and sort of teaching history from a certain perspective that, I mean, that's just sort of natural to have happen. So we want to engage in a way that draws people into an experience. It's an invitational experience, but definitely it, we do ask that people come with a spirit of listening and they're going to probably hear from someone, no matter where we're coming from, we're going to hear from someone we disagree with when you're coming to visit because maybe you have a perception of an asylum seeker and they're, they don't really have a, they shouldn't be doing this. They're not really fleeing. And you're sort of prone to not believing what they're saying. But then maybe you're on the other end and you're going to meet with border patrol and maybe you're feeling that same way about border patrol. So we're ask everybody like, look, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, but we ask that you respectfully listen and really try to understand where someone is coming from. Mm, that's really interesting. Uh, as Elisa and I were preparing for this conversation, Elisa had a question that um, I thought was really a really thoughtful question. And it was, is there rhetoric that we as a community, as, as our upside down listeners, we should be mindful of kind of divesting from when it comes from what is happening at the border? Yeah, well, I think it's it's been heartbreaking the last few years, and it's not just the last few years, but um, I think it's just to hear some of the words and, and things that have been spoken from whether it's political leaders, religious leaders, individuals on Facebook, um, sort of that, that's perpetuating a culture of fear and almost demonizing a whole people group. Um, so I would say we absolutely need to divest from that. Um, again, especially for those of us who claim or truly are trying to follow Christ, then there's no place. I don't believe there's any place for that um, as followers of Christ. I, th I feel like we, through Jesus' words and life is so evident that he engaged with those across divides very purposefully. In fact, you know, some of his kindest words were to those who from, you know, were different from his community. They were not Jewish. They were Samaritan. They were something else. Um, and he, time and time again, sort of reaches across those boundaries and to those in, in society that were the least or that were on the outside. Um, and so I think the little things we do when we talk about someone who's different from us um, really matter. Um, and then they, those get bigger and bigger. And, and then in my mind, uh, that sort of, the, I mean, the end result is something like what happened at the Walmart mass shooting here um, in El Paso a few months ago, where we had someone literally drive 10 hours to come to the, from inside the U.S., right, from the Dallas area, to come to the border to stop a Hispanic invasion, quote unquote, and then shoot up a whole bunch, dozens of people and kill 20 some people and very much targeting uh, Latinos in particular. Um, and so I would say we absolutely need to divest of that kind of language and that kind of othering. It's, 
is wild. Like there's a Holocaust museum here in El Paso, not to be like overly dramatic, but really like just looking through sort of the lead up to the Holocaust and how the words that we use about people groups um, or the words that were used about Jews in that context. And then also having heard from a number of people who were present in Rwanda and the lead up to the genocide in Rwanda. I mean, it's sort of like sort of dehumanizing other people, creating fear. And then all of a sudden that can be activated really quickly and turns violent quickly. And I think as followers of Jesus, we have no place in that. Elisa, what do you, what is your kind of perspective as somebody who is Latina, has a deep connection to El Paso, like when, when these really hard things, you know, we talked a little bit when the shooting happened, but just what are you processing right now? You know, I just, um, to be from El Paso is to know just what a a loving community it is. And I think I'm, I'm not at all surprised that people along the, uh, United States side kind of banded together quickly to, to, to try to come alongside asylum seekers. And it doesn't surprise me at all that people on the Juarez side have, have done the same. I think that the one thing that I struggle with in hearing all, all, all this, I guess, straight from, straight from somebody who's seeing it day in, day out is two things. It's, it's really two questions for you, Sammy. Um, one, how do you, what sustains you as far as hope goes? How, how do you prevent yourself from despairing? Because it is such a, it's such a vast um, array of things that we're trying to combat. And, um, and so much of it is out of our control because of just how things have been changing. And also, I guess, practically speaking for myself, I find it really hard to be kind of, uh, to find a consistent place to like come alongside and to, even if it is, I mean, there's a definite, uh, practice of prayer in my life for these specific, uh, intentions, uh, at the border, but, you know, specific ways that I can be helping. Um, I feel like a lot of times I just like donate haphazardly depending on, you know, who's on my feed and what at that point is, is dire and necessary. Uh, I wish I could be more strategic. So I guess those are the two things that have really been playing in my mind as I'm listening to you. And maybe you could speak to those kind of two things. How do, how do you keep a stubborn hope in all of this? And, and also maybe some practical things that we could be doing uh, from afar, uh, those of us who are not on the border. Yeah, great questions. Um, what sustains me? I think I certainly, certainly don't have that down perfectly. <laughs> Um, and I, and at times really find myself worn thin. Um, but I think, and I, and I think what needs to happen. And when I am in this one, in in a good place, it is what's happening is that I am taking, I mean, daily time, um, with God in, in silence, um, away from things, centering the daily office, um, and doing, and also regular Sabbath day off, a day of rest. And, and times to pull away, um, to really just 
discern how to move forward because I mean the the needs are overwhelming and and they can't be solved quickly or easily um, or by any one person obviously or any group of people or a country even I mean they're just so I think discernment and wisdom is huge and sort of what what things to move forward in um, and if there's one thing that I wish to do more of and hope to do more of is just that sort of daily the daily rhythms daily rhythms weekly rhythms of pulling away and and getting maybe even to silent retreats occasionally it was really in a silent retreat in february uh, yeah in february where really sort of the, the vision for me of how to move forward here at least the first steps sort of came into clarity and just today uh there's just so much we have a fundraiser in a in a uh for our neighborhood work next week and just stressed out on so many levels and just went into the mountains. El Paso is amazing because there's, as you know, Lisa, there's Franklin Mountains in the middle of it. And in about 15 minutes, you can feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. So even just being up there for 30 minutes, 40 minutes was in silence, phone off, praying, trying to listen. And just that's what can sort of help me get in a better place. But also just the sustenance in that I think hope what is 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 amazing hope to see in the eyes of those that we're encountering um and that gives sustenance just these are people beautiful people and uh, one of the things that struck me when i was in central america and hearing and and hearing about just such such hard situations and someone asked the person what gives you hope and they sort of had a twinkle in the eye and they looked at us they're like well what is hope? They're like hope is when you when you're ho- when things are hopeless. That's when you have hope. Otherwise, hope doesn't matter. So they're basically, saying, <laughs> of course, we have hope. Things are hopeless. We have hope of God, and that stuck with me. Sort of in the midst of, in the midst of, uh, sometimes what seems like a lot of darkness. There's just these little points of light, and then I think maybe the second question, right, was how to find consist consistent places to engage. Is that right? Right. Like, what would you recommend for me or our listeners? How do we come alongside since we're not, you know, there on the ground with you? What are some practical ways we can do that? Yeah. Well, I think, honestly, yeah, especially those not anywhere near the border. It's so difficult to, th- to think about that. But really, hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers are pursuing their cases all around the country and almost guaranteed they're in your hometown. I mean, I know they're in Austin. I know they're in, you know, pretty much every city. We've had those passing through El Paso. We've known they've gone to all 48 contiguous states. And um, so trying to find those in your midst to engage and to support, because uh, I think uh, the embrace and the welcome and the support in their communities where they are right now, they may or may not win their cases. More often than not, they're not going to win their case and they'll be deported. But in the meantime, there's six, eight, ten months, maybe a year and a half that they're in the community. And um, so there's lots of ways to engage in that. So I would look up, I mean, like, for instance, in Austin, there's a, a local CCDA Austin group that's fairly new, I think. And I saw that they were having a gathering on how to how to engage neighbors, new neighbors, but even going to the school uh, schools to see who's in ESL programs um, or, or talk to the schools, how, how we can support in the schools. I think that's a natural entry point. Um, in terms of supporting what's happening here on the border, um, I think for those interested in, in com- like, say, bringing a group of learners from the community they're in, 
um, that's a great opportunity to sort of discern how to move forward. And we've had lots of groups do that, university groups, churches, interested individuals. Um, and uh, it's amazing some of the things that have come out of that and some of the ideas that have come out of that. Um, and then also, of course, just supporting work on the ground. Um, we're right now you know, seeking extra funds just for some of these projects that we're doing with uh, uh, like the water projects. We could do a lot more of those solar projects. Uh, bunk beds. We just had a couple sort of investigative groups uh, over this last weekend, one looking at urban farms and how those could be used um, both to for feeding for the shelters, but also for uh, guests to be working in the farms, um, which was pretty cool. And then another group that was more looking at medical needs. Uh, so a dream right now that really keeps sort of I don't know. It's grown pretty big right now um, for us. It's just there's there's this one spot in El Paso that's right on the border, and it's an old restaurant that's boarded up, but it's literally there's a, a, a memorial next to it that's commemorating the landing of Juan Banyote, who was the first conquistador, the first European steps on U.S. soil in the western U.S., that spot. We're thinking, what could would it be like to have a center, a border, a, like a learning and retreat center on the on the border, that is looking at it, trying to understand the history of what's happened through colonization and forward, um, through our history in the U.S., but also linked into Central, you know, wow. Mexico, Central America. Yeah, um, and then, but then also like, what does healing look like moving forward from? So that would be that. And we've been looking at that and it's a, it's a $1.1 million um, old restaurant. And uh, I don't know that just sort of, that's another fire that's sort of been lit for us where we feel like, you know, I think God's going to make this happen. Wow. That's really cool. That's awesome. So if we and our listeners want to partner with the work that you're doing in some way, where can they go? How can they connect with you? Um, probably the easiest way is just on our website, abarafrontiers.org, abara, A-B-A-R-A, frontiers.org. And uh, abara means ford, ford or like river crossing in, uh, in a variety of Semitic languages, including Arabic. That's really cool. So the concept is sort of like a bridge or a yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that we at Upside Down Podcast can get behind and our listeners as well. Sammy, thank you so much for for being on with us. And I just feel like your empathy and compassion and um, gentleness and heart for peacemaking um, across very literal borders, but then, you know, across the walls that we put up around our own hearts is very obvious. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you, Elisa and everyone else. And we will wrap up this episode. If you want to learn more about Upside Down Podcast, you can visit us at UpsideDownPodcast.com or we are Upside Down Podcast on Instagram where we always put our show notes. We put special links. Um, And if you want to support us something really easy that you can do is to just get on your podcast app usually apple Podcasts, and give us a star review and that helps these important conversations that we're having with people like sammy um, and, and
so many more be presented, <laughs> for lack of a better word, but it helps people find us. So go ahead, give us a rating, give us a review, and of course, go check out A Bar of Frontiers. Um, really cool things happening. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Upside Down Podcast. New episodes are released on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. The Upside Down Podcast is created by Lindsay Wallace, Kayla Craig, Elisa Molina, and Gina Siliberto. Our show notes are written by Lana Smith. Johnny Craig and Tess Malone edit the episodes, and our theme music is Dreamers Act by DJ Sean P. And of course, our monthly patrons make everything possible.